I'm a charming psychopath and grateful to be a clever serial killer. These are the shocking words of not only an aspiring crime writer, but a cold-blooded murderer. The crime he committed sent shockwaves through the nation for its brutal nature. An innocent woman his victim, none the wiser to the dark intentions of someone who was watching her, biding his time, just meters away from her home. And as the case unfolded and more evidence came to light, the disturbing minds of this man became known to the public. During a year full of violence towards women, from a murder in a post office to the murder of a young girl and her grandfather by a family member, this case once again reaffirmed the fact that gender-based violence is out of control in our beloved country. This is the senseless and heartbreaking case of the murder of Lynette Fulshing. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. Murder and Mayhem is the first trauma-informed true crime episodic series in South Africa that explores real-life crimes from a psychological viewpoint, hosted by a mental health professional. Every week, via video format, online the official Bella Monsoon YouTube channel, as well as audio format via the podcast, a new case is examined and together we delve headfirst into the meaning and motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me on a weekly expedition into the mind behind the macabre as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. Lynette Volschenk grew up in Feltroft, around 160 kilometers north of Cape Town. She matriculated from Hoer School Feltroft and later moved to the mother city. She was known by many as a kind soul who loved Grey's Anatomy and being outdoors. Her parents, Jeanette and Christy, described her as gentle and peace-loving. She worked as a draughtsman, an individual who creates technical drawings and blueprints at Lena's Engineers. She did not have a large group of friends, but those who knew her would not hesitate to describe her as a sweetheart. Lynette had also been living in the Siersig building in Belleville for the past five years, on the 10th floor. And it was in this very building that she would not only meet her demise, but also her killer. Karl Reiters was born in Johannesburg. As an infant, he was rejected at only 17 months old by his biological parents, who were both allegedly drug addicts. This led to him being passed to his grandmother and ultimately his aunt, Teresa. She then proceeded to raise him as her own son and moved to Cape Town. Karl and Teresa lived on the 9th floor of the Siersig apartment, Unit 911 in Lovenstein, Belleville. And prior to the crime that he would commit, the pair had lived there for over a decade. Interestingly enough, and more on that very soon, Teresa Reiters is actually a member of the Cape Bar, specializing in criminal law. She also may be familiar to some. But as I said, more on that shortly. Growing up, Kyle attended the well-known Weinberg Boys High School. For those who are also not aware, Weinberg Boys is known as one of the top schools in the Cape. As a youngster, he was apparently bullied by some of his peers, more often than not, girls, due to him being smaller in stature. He, however, enjoyed sports and went on to play ice hockey, allegedly for the Western Province Under-20 team in 2016. Although he struggled academically, he kept at it, eventually matriculating in 2016 at the age of 21. Former classmates and sports teammates would describe him as being someone who would make you laugh. Whether that was with him or at him, who knows. 
He struggled to gain and hold down employment, but from the 1st of November 2018 till the end of June 2019, Kyle had worked at Kum Books, a Christian bookstore in Tiger Valley Shopping Center. By all his colleagues there, he was described as a friendly and helpful young man. Not the kind of person that you would necessarily peg to be the sadistic killer that he turned out to be, right? But I'm getting ahead of myself. His disturbing act was definitely a shock to his friends and family. That's for sure. And speaking of family, the name Teresa Reiters may sound familiar to some, especially if you're a South African true crime buff. Let me explain why. She specializes in criminal law, and in the early 2000s, she was the legal representative of Adam Vost. Does he sound familiar? Well, he just might, especially if you're up to date with my episodes. For those who aren't, Adam Vost was one of two perpetrators who committed the heinous and infamous Sizzler's Massacre in the early 2000s. And she was part of his defense. So yeah, there's that too. Now that you're up to date with the main role plays in this narrative, all of these moments, all of these actions led up to one fateful day. And so the 21st of August 2019 dawned. The very last message Lynette would post to her social media pages was on that Wednesday morning. A quote from Frida Kahlo that said, At the end of the day, we can endure much more than we think we can. That day, Lynette would not show up to work definitely not a common occurrence for her. One of Lynette's colleagues from the engineering firm would check and find out that Lynette was the last active and last seen on WhatsApp at 4.45pm. Later during the investigation, it would come to light that the sound of a woman screaming for help was allegedly heard around five minutes after this time, in the very same apartment block that Lynette had lived in. It's also alleged that the caretaker was apparently called after this noise was heard, but no one ended up showing up at the apartment. In order to understand the events of the day, let's view this narrative from a different perspective. The day was August 21st, a Wednesday, and Kyle had it all planned, and he knew that the few days that Teresa was away from the home was the perfect time to strike. She was only due to return the following day, that Thursday, so he had the house to himself to come and go as he pleased. As I mentioned, Kyle and his aunt lived in the very same block of flats that Lynette did, and for more than two weeks prior to his attack, he observed Lynette's movements. Neighbors would later state that they often saw him in the corridors of the 12th floor, in a space that directly overlooked the front door of Lynette on the 10th floor. And so with his plan in motion, he waited. Waited for Lynette to return home. When she entered her home, she was carrying groceries. And so she had left her front door open so she could enter her kitchen to put her bags down. And that was when he struck. After entering her home, he walked into the kitchen where she had her back face towards him and before she knew what was happening, he attacked her. She fought back, however, and so he grabbed one of her very own knives and stabbed her. The later autopsy report would show that she was stabbed in her neck, her hands and her forearms, repeatedly. He would only stop stabbing when she showed no signs of movement. At the time of her death, she was only 32 years old. Kyle quickly moved on to the next part of his plan. He decided to cut her body up for disposal, using a handheld saw that he found in her apartment, as well as a knife. 
Parts of her body would also later be found in his apartment in black bin bags. Her limbs and head would later be removed from her torso, with her stomach being sliced multiple times. Kyle continued to work for most of the evening, with neighbors later stating that they heard noises, sounding like someone hitting a hammer, coming from Lynette's apartment. He would then place parts of her into a blue cooler box to carry it from her corner apartment on the 10th floor to his 9th floor apartment. Around 10pm that evening, tired from all the work he had been doing, he went home to sleep. The following morning, however, he returned. The apartment was obviously covered in blood and so he had googled a nearby hardware store to go and purchase some supplies. He then left for Bright's Hardware to buy the yellow gloves and a hacksaw. He then spent the morning moving her remains which he had divided into nine parts. He also placed her head into a plastic shopping bag and rucksack and CCTV footage would later show him leaving the apartment with this bag. He had then thrown the bag into the bushes in Yip de Jache Drive, Lovenstein, about 400 meters away. He had also wiped the blood from his body using towels, which he had then dumped in the bin room of the apartment block. He was seen with the cooler box shortly after 8 a.m., walking to his apartment using a different route to then get back to the 10th floor again. In his mind, I suppose he thought he was being sneaky. However, he was not really successful in not being seen. He was also supposed to post a social media message that he had composed on the 16th of August, mind you, to explain her absence, but he had not posted it just yet. The message had read, and I quote, Hey everyone, I have left for a couple of days for a Bible retreat. And his failure to post that message might have very well been his downfall. Let me explain. On the 22nd of August 2019, the body of Lynette was discovered. And here's how it went down. Worried about her and unable to get hold of her, neighbors and Lynette's sister arrived that very morning at her apartment. However, when her sister Crystal knocked on her apartment door, the face that would greet them as the door opened was not Lynette. Wearing gloves and Lynette's burgundy hoodie, the man in the home would state that he was paid by her to clean her home. At the time, he was also under the influence of Tuck, Crystal Meth, and weed. Having realized it probably wasn't the greatest idea to open the door, he attempted to leave, but was stopped by those outside her door and kept there until the police arrived. And it would be around 11am that police were called to the horrific scene. It was here that they would find black bags containing body parts of the deceased cut into pieces. It however would only be the next day when Lynette's head was located, and this even after Kyle attempted to lead the police astray. For for the police, however, this was not the first time that they had been called to this building to find a horrific scene awaiting them. Just two months prior, a 65-year-old man, Anthony Marais, was found dead in his apartment. Security gate forced opened and a rope wrapping his body to a chair. No suspects were ever arrested in that murder case. Police officers then took Kyle downstairs to a lock-up garage in the complex where he was instructed to remove his clothing for further forensic testing. He was then given a set of blue overalls to wear before being taken away. The not yet publicly identified 24-year-old would then be arrested and set to appear in the Belleville Magistrates Court the following Monday. And as the news broke, the public as well as the neighborhood, especially the residents of the apartment block were in shock. 
Teresa, Kyle's aunt, who had returned to this chaos, issued a statement saying that no comment would be made by the family as a police investigation was underway. At his later trial, she would also threaten photographers who took her picture, attempting to get the media banned from taking or publishing images of her. The judge, however, would later state that the legal team should make an application with good reason should that draconian decision be made, given that people's lives were not at risk. He would also state that it is the media's duty to keep members of the public informed as to what is happening in the courts. So yeah, that didn't really go the way she had hoped. At his initial court appearance, dressed in a blue and black tracksuit top, Kyle was barraged by insults. He, however, remained calm and expressionless throughout it all. It was confirmed that he had a clean criminal record with no warrants for his arrest. The court also stated that he could be photographed as his face had already appeared in the media. Whilst the court adjourned, Kyle remained in custody in the Belleville police station holding cells. A petition stating that Kyle should not be granted bail then began to circulate. Whilst further investigations took place, Lynette's family struggled to come to terms with her passing. Her brother-in-law had said, and I quote, My sister was taken from our lives in a very horrific way last week. It was not just a crime, it was violence. At this stage, our family is alternating between anger and sadness. On the 7th of September, in a private ceremony, the funeral for Lynette Folshank was held in Paro. And as for Kyle, well, due to various delays, due to outstanding DNA and autopsy reports, as well as a change in legal representation, his court appearances awaited recommencement. And then the pandemonium of 2020 struck. Further delays ensued, as well as the request by his new legal team for a psychological evaluation. Initially, a district doctor had found him competent to stand trial, but his legal representation requested and insisted that he be referred for psychiatric observation. And so, a decision to refer to Falkenberg Psychiatric Hospital for observation was made. Keeping in mind, the waiting list for a bed was around 10 to 12 months at that time. And that was when things were speeding along. Yeah. But surprisingly enough, and let me tell you, it is surprising, especially if you know the state of governmental mental health care in the country at the moment. Three months later, Kyle was given a bed and he began his 30-day observation. This, however, would turn into two months, but eventually the verdict was in. In February of 2021, Kyle Reiters was found fit to stand trial and thus he was indicted officially. And his case was moved to the High Court in Cape Town with nearly 60 people on the witness list. Kyle was then set to face charges of murder, desecration, theft, possession of counterfeit money, and defeating the law. The charge regarding the money was due to around 10,000 rands worth of counterfeit notes being found in his apartment. The charge of theft referred to items that were taken from Lynette, which included, amongst other things, a cupcake pan, a scale, house keys, a cooler box, two bottles of medicine, a pink towel, the burgundy hoodie, and a transparent bag. The cooler box, as I previously mentioned, was used to move Lynette's body parts from her apartment to his. After the psychiatric findings, his legal representation then asked the court for him to be examined by a private psychiatrist. Obviously, the results from the psychiatric evaluation was not what they had hoped. 
I mean, it doesn't really work like that, but okay. Whilst awaiting that report, Kyle was moved to Pulsemore Prison. Eventually, in 2023, after multiple delays, the trial commenced. On the 9th of May, 2023, in a plea deal, Kyle Reiters pled and was found guilty of premeditated murder, desecration of a corpse, as well as one charge of attempting to prevent the law. The charges of theft and possession of counterfeit money were dropped by the state as part of the plea deal. Judge Robert Henney stated, and I quote, Reiters was unequivocally guilty of murdering Lynette Fulshank. Within Kyle's plea document, he had stated how he planned to kill her, then desecrated her body before disposing of the pieces. He had mentioned how he watched her, singled her out, and planned his attack. Judge Henney stated how he was purposeful in his actions and researched even the methods of cutting a corpse. The state would then also bring forward an application requesting that Kyle be declared a dangerous criminal. Essentially, this would require him to once again appear before a court when he was up for parole before parole could be granted. And what did Kyle have to say for himself, you may ask? Well, his defense was around that time in August of 2019, he had a big drug problem and he had to make a plan to pay his dealer to whom he owed around 30,000 rand. Therefore, he had decided to kill someone and then rob them and sell their expensive possessions to pay off his drug debts. Hmm, sounds kind of suspicious to me. I mean, he could essentially just rob someone without killing them. I'm just saying. In Lynette's case, he had planned to steal her vehicle keys as well as her ID for this payment. After his guilty verdict was heard, the trial was adjourned until October of 2023. The reason for this was that the application submitted to declare Kyle a dangerous criminal required another 30-day psychological observation. He was then transferred back to Polsmoor. It was also rumored that during this time he became a member of the 28's gang with a tattoo on the inside of his wrist that proved his membership. If you're interested in knowing more about South African gangs and how they work and operate, I do have more information within my Cameron Wilson episode, which you can find in the playlist. When court resumed in November of 2023, it was stated by the psychologist report that Kyle Reiters posed a danger to society and should be declared a dangerous criminal. It was also heard how he showed no genuine remorse for Lynette's murder, the lies that he told, or the ways in which he harmed the rights of others. Yes others. According to the panel that evaluated him, his chances of rehabilitation are extremely slim. Kyle, in a letter which was explored during the sentencing, asked the Fulshank family for forgiveness. He claimed that he knew her death left a void and the mere thought that he was responsible for it destroyed him every day. He said, and I quote, Lynette Fulshank's death not only caused pain for your own family, but also for my family. I dragged them into the whole thing without thinking how my actions would also destroy their lives. But please know that I feel your pain and suffering. It's something I have to live with and I can't forgive myself. Four years and three months after her brutal murder, Kyle appeared in court for his sentencing. 
he was sentenced to life imprisonment along with 15 years for the desecration of a corpse and a further five years for attempting to defeat the ends of justice. The sentences will be served concurrently. Judge Robert Henney described him as a monster with no regard for his victim or any other woman he also wanted to kill. He ordered that the sentence, the victim impact report of Lynette's sister, the psychiatric reports of those who examined him, the autopsy report, indictment reports, and all the images of the crime scene must be added to his inmate profile. Thus, the Department of Correctional Services must take all of this into account when he is eligible for parole one day. So, as always, after such a traumatic event, there's always the desire to understand more, to gather answers for the questions we may have. And as the police investigation of this case had progressed, a deeper understanding of Kyle had developed. So let's dig a little deeper to not only fully explore this case, but to take a peek into Kyle's mind. Within Kyle and Teresa's home, investigators had found notebooks with his handwriting. Within these notebooks, he had not only fantasized about sex, but he had also mentioned at least one other potential victim. Actually, quite a few more. Other books dealing with forensic investigation and medical law were also found in the apartment. However, it was unclear whether those books belonged to Kyle or Teresa, as she also worked in the field at the time. Regardless, experts who specialize in profiling were called into the case, ultimately, to share a deeper knowledge. In the handwritten notebooks found, Kyle wrote things like, and I quote, I am the master of manipulation, but it doesn't really stop there. Within the very same book was a list of 19 women's names as well as a package for delivery to one of the names on the list. Yeah, I kid you not. Every person on his kill list had been observed thoroughly with movements to and from their homes, workplaces and other places they had visited being listed. Their activity on social media was also tracked by him. In Lynette's case, he had even made videos of her particular movements and notes of his intentions. So in plain terms, that list consisted of people he wanted to kill, as well as instructions and in-depth details of how he wanted to kill them. A kill list. And you know what? Lynette's name was not the first on the list. So essentially, if he had not been caught, they would more than likely have been another victim. I'll go a little more in depth into that in a little bit. On his laptop, more disturbing data was discovered. Over a terabyte to be precise. He visited several websites between April and August in 2019 and did research on multiple topics, including which chemicals caused frostbite. He made notes about where to buy different chemicals, how many volts it took to render someone unconscious, and how to surprise someone and avoid blood on clothing. And of course I'm going to share that with you, so here is some of the evidence that was found on his devices. One note in particular from April 29th, 2019 had read, I am a charming psychopath and grateful to be a clever serial killer. Hmm, well yeah, that's an interesting mantra. I don't suggest that one. There was also, I am the smartest serial killer the world has ever seen. Yeah, also not that one, buddy. Those were the words of Kyle 12 times in a notes app on his phone on the 6th of June, 2019. Two days later, he wrote, The blueprint, find the goal or target. On the 15th of June, he searched, 
How many volts does it take to knock someone out? On the 11th of July, he searched online for a number plate and made a note that he should learn about the human body. Then on the 20th of July, he made a note to avoid spilling blood on his clothing. Reminders on his phone were not about groceries to buy or emails to send, but rather research into how dangerous chemicals and home security systems worked. On August 1st, he made an entry into his phone about how he needed to do something out of the ordinary, like break into someone's place, kill and cut up an animal, or kill someone in order to reach his goal. As I mentioned, videos of Lynette were found, dated from August 5th and 7th. Notes of her movements had accompanied the videos. He even made a note on the 13th of August planning what to do if or when he was arrested, stating that the primary tools police have when investigating are interviews or interrogations. Within his musings, he fantasized about becoming a famous serial killer and conducted in-depth research about individuals like Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, and Edmund Kemper. His search results had even confused skier Trevor Phillip with the fictional psychotic killer Trevor Phillips of Grand Theft Auto. Yeah. He also had an intense interest in the sadistic nature of these killers' crimes. He was particularly fond of the Zodiac Killer and Bundy. Bundy attracted his attention because, like him, he too was raised by his aunt and handled his own defense in court. He admired the Zodiac Killer the most, though, because, of course, he was never caught or identified. I mean, there's role models and then there's role models. Yeah, kids, let's not do that. Kyle wanted to write books about serial killers, and he even wrote short stories on the subject. Despite this actually being a successful and booming genre, with genuinely great authors who aren't killers, Kyle's fascination was far darker. He would also ultimately blame Tuck or Crystal Meth on his desire to be like the serial killers he admired. So given what we know now, would you consider Kyle to be a psychopath? Mull that over whilst we dig even deeper. The psychiatric report of two forensic psychologists who evaluated Kyle in Falkenberg in December of 2020 would state that he had definite psychopathic traits and the desire to become a serial killer. They added that should he be found guilty, the court must be aware that he poses a danger to the physical and mental well-being of others. Keeping all of that in mind though, he was not found to be mentally ill. And that is the part that trips a lot of people up. It is inconceivable to most that someone with such traits and characteristics could be considered legally sane. Personality traits, the sphere within which these psychopathic traits fall, don't necessarily equal mental illness. Many individuals who possess similar traits are successful politicians or even your next-door neighbor. And there is an incredibly high probability that none of these individuals may ever physically harm another soul. It is so important to understand that there are many different elements and factors that combine to lead to many of these horrendous acts. So Kyle was described as a psychopath with antisocial personality disorder. During the assessment, his alcohol and drug use by the age of 15, as well as his failure in school and lies to his teachers, 
all counted against him. The judge in his case, however, felt as though this assessment, which was devised in Canada and standardized for South Africa, did not take South African society and cultural aspects into consideration. And that in itself is an interesting concept to consider, and could actually be an episode in itself. Within Kyle in particular, he showed strong characteristics of dishonesty and being prone to lying. This was exhibited in the variety of stories he told staff and psychiatrists during his evaluations. Although he admitted his crimes to the psychiatrists, he told his staff that it was a drug dealer that had killed Lynette. He also lied about his drug use, with urine tests showing that he was still using marijuana, although he claimed to be clean. He also showcased no guilt when he casually remarked that in the past, he stole items from his colleagues. He was also incredibly proud of the sex tapes that he had made without the consent or knowledge of his companions. I mean, that in itself. The mental health professionals who assessed Kyle during his trial stated that it was possible he was rejected at some point in his youth by a white woman. This is an interesting hypothesis as both Lynette as well as the second person who was on his list, a young white woman, looked incredibly similar. Taking into account his childhood abandonment by his mother and the fact that his potential victims looked almost identical, it led them to believe that any contact with a white woman could and would ignite his resentment and anger. He also exhibited stalking behaviors and unhealthy attachments. He pursued a woman who was also working in Tiger Valley Shopping Center, but when she did not return his attention or interest and refused to give him her phone number, he became obsessed. He started tracking and following her, taking videos of her too. He even went as far as pretending to be a job recruiter in order to obtain her mobile number from her colleagues. He stalked her and then followed her to her complex where he faked a package delivery in order to gain access. There he had also planned to steal her motorbike. And she was not even the only one being stalked by him. I think it's really important to mention that the investigators followed up with every single name on the list and not one single woman was aware of the fact that they were being watched. With the rise of technology and social media, keeping a track of an individual is unfortunately easier now than ever. So it is here that I divert from the psychological to the practical, for a moment at least, to share some advice and tips to keep yourself safe and vigilant. But first, in order to protect ourselves against stalkers, we need to understand them, at least a little bit. Whilst there is no surefire way of spotting such an individual, as they are not always the stereotyped, lonely, socially awkward person lurking in the shadows, but rather can often be the charming, friendly, average person that you would never expect. That being said though, here are several factors that motivate and drive the behavior of stalkers, as well as the characteristics that many of them hold. Rejection is the first. Whether real or perceived, the fear and potential reality of rejection triggers the fear of abandonment that exists within many of these individuals. Obsession is the next, and probably the biggest. There is often the occurrence of repetitive thought patterns that continue and play like a broken record, constantly on loop. These individuals prioritize preoccupation with their target over sleep, eating, working, and life in general. A distinct lack of coping skills and narcissistic traits go hand in hand, fueling and driving their behavior. 
And the existence within this fantasy is a key factor within the minds of these individuals. The line between truth and reality is blurred, and the view they hold of themselves and others, even their victim, is often very inaccurate. These individuals can often be deceptive, struggle to accept no as an answer, struggle to cope with rejection, and view themselves as the victim. So now that you can picture some of the elements that drive the behavior, how can you protect yourself? First and foremost, if you believe that you're being stalked, record everything. I'm talking about taking pictures, videos, notes, and timestamps. Save every message that is sent to you by your stalker too, if applicable. This information is vital in ensuring that you can take the next legal steps. In particular, I'm talking about a protection order. In South Africa, stalking is described as the action of deliberately and continually pursuing an individual against his or her will. The goal for the perpetrator is to ultimately control, intimidate, terrify, or harm the person being stalked. It can be online, in person, verbal, via messages, or of course, nonverbal. The best legal course of action is to apply for a protection order at your nearest magistrate's court, according to Section 2 of the Protection from Harassment Act. An application form is submitted along with a written affidavit. These documents detail all the incidents of harassment or stalking. An individual may also have a friend or a relative complete this application for them if they are not able to themselves for whatever reason. Sometimes I understand, particularly in South Africa, the legal route may be drawn out or maybe not even possible for others for a multitude of reasons. So what tangible things can you do to further safeguard yourself, even if it's just while you wait for a PO to be processed? First and foremost, avoid driving or using the same routes at the same time. I know this can get tricky, especially if you use a certain route to work every day, but as far as you can, try not to fall into a rigid routine if you do suspect you're being watched. When it comes to your home, ensure your home is locked and secure at all times. If you live in an apartment block, avoid putting your lights on as soon as you get into your flat, rather wait a few minutes. That way, it's harder for someone to figure out exactly which apartment you may be living in. Safety, however, extends from the home to many different spheres of life. Look, I for one know that telling people these days to avoid social media is pointless. I get it. But there are certain ways that you can safeguard yourself online. The simplest tips I can offer from my personal experience too, don't link your location in online posts. I'm often in places where I'm expected to tag in or showcase my location, but I always delay posts, only sharing location information once I've left that space or area. If your profile is already private or just limited to friends, make sure you limit the ability of friends tagging you in their posts. Set it so that you can approve or disprove tags. Be sure of the places you're ordering online from before disclosing all of your private, residential, and contact info. And these are literally just a handful of millions of different safety tips that I can give you. I do have a lot more safety and well-being tips that I include on my website as I think it is vital for us to be the safest we can be in the world that we live in. That is at least something we can try to control. Most importantly, above everything else, trust your instincts. Trust your gut. There is a reason why scientists call the stomach the second brain. Within the lining of your digestive tract, there is a neural network of 100 million neurons. That's even more than the amount found in your spinal cord. I'm just saying. The truth of the matter is that it's not fair that we as individuals and often as women should have to be so vigilant 
just when existing. And I get it. This is not the world we deserve, but it is unfortunately the world that we're living in. And whilst we do our utmost best to make the changes necessary to ensure a better, safer existence, do what you can. Be vigilant and look out for one another. It may seem like the biggest cliche, but together we truly can make a difference. But until the day where women like Lynette, Uyanene, Jessie and so many others do not have their lives stolen from them, we will continue the fight. And I will continue to honor their memories and ensure their narratives live on. Until next week, stay blessed, stay safe, stay vigilant and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye!